confusion amongst I know there's a lot of uh, confusion in society, you know, with the differences between men and women. Um, is it just how that they're born different or is it the environment that they're in that makes, you know, women or females drawn to certain things and males drawn to certain things? Well, when Pastor Merrill was talking about the church picnic, that made me think of a concrete example that there are differences between men and women. Well, first off, he asked for any men that would replace Pastor Fred. It's like, women can't grill? I mean, come on, ladies, you can step up too. Don't put it all on us. But that made me think of a recent men's event we had. We had a, a bags night at Kelly Spencer's house. And he's got this great workbench in his garage. And so we call it the workbench buffet. So I told guys, all right, just bring a snack that we can share that everybody can pitch into. So at the end of the night, I looked at the snack bench. It was, I'm not kidding, nine bags of chips. Just later, you know, some of them are spilling out and everything. One jar of salsa. Uh, utensils? No, they were nowhere to be found. That was it. Covered in sawdust, you know, spilling onto the floor, you know, the vice grip had caught the jar of salsa before it fell on the ground. As opposed to going to a women's function. You have tablecloths, you have doilies, you have these things called utensils. So yes, there are differences between the way men and women approach food functions. So I am excited to be able to be a part of our next church picnic. And um, ladies, please help us out in that regard. <laughs> well, this is an extreme privilege for me to be able to preach alongside my dad. I know you have heard so much about my dad when I preach up here. And it's great to be able to introduce him to many of you for the first time. And so I, I'm very excited. I'm just kind of hitting lead off here, and then I'm going to hand it over to him to preach the bulk of the message. And um, one, one thing that I want to commemorate here today is it, my dad and my mom are not, they don't like a lot of celebration in their life. They love to celebrate other people. Uh, my dad is the police and fire department chaplain in Mount Prospect, and people at work love to see my dad come to work partly because of him, but more importantly, because of what he brings. My mom's contribution, which is big, these, uh, you know, those styrofoam clamshell containers, he brings those full of chocolate chip cookies that she makes and passes them around to the police department, the fire department, the detectives, the records department, and all that. So they love to see my dad come and do ride-alongs, but uh, they love to bless other people, but they're not big on intention for themselves. So I, of course, as the rebellious son, I'm going to go against that. And I want to commemorate this Friday is going to be my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. My one older brother, Jason, was here last night. Uh, my other brother, David, is a pastor and is unavailable to be here. Uh, 52 years old is David, so don't tell him. He thinks he's 49 because they're, you know, you do the math. No, I'm joking. Um, but, yeah, so it was, it's very exciting to be able to have him and his anniversary weekend to be able to come up and preach with me. Uh, just to show the fruit of their labor, uh, we just spent uh, last week in Green Lake, Wisconsin, our Bechtold family reunion. So if we can show the picture that we have, this is the whole Bechtold crew. So... Yes, we have uh, the three boys, uh, our wives, and the 12 grandkids all there. 
And you notice all those teenage and up girls and, uh, yeah, you notice I don't have a lot of hair. Um, it's going to be a rough going for the next few years for us dads, but this is, it was a great time up there, and so I'm just, this is their pride and joy. And we all love our grandparents, and we all love God. What a great testimony. All right, well, we're going to dive right into the Word here. If you do have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to the last book of the Old Testament. Who knows what the last book of the Old Testament is? Malachi. All right, so turn to the last book of the Old Testament, and we're going to look at the last verse of the Old Testament. We're not going to read it, though. We've got a little exercise we're going to do here. So we have the last book of the Old Testament. Now what I'd like you to do is take that page and flip it over. And what pops up? The New Testament, Matthew. So what just happened in that act of flipping the page? We just jumped ahead over 400 years in history. A large time span, centuries between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this intertestamental period, where God was seemingly silent. We don't have records of God working within those four centuries. To give you an idea how long 400 years is, is to think back 400 years from our history. Now, I know only a couple of you were alive then, so I won't put you on the spot. But we'll just say 1620. In 1620, the Mayflower Compact was signed by the Plymouth settlers. That was 400 years. That was a long, long time ago. And that's the time span we're talking about between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what was going on there? I'm not going to get into a, a huge history lesson about that 400 years, but what I am going to do is focus on the end of that 400 years leading up to the coming of the Messiah. So culturally, Greek became the common culture, the common language spoken throughout the Mediterranean area. And this was very helpful in communication, obviously. You had one main langu major language that unified people that they were able to speak to each other in. Beyond that, there was politi politically you had Roman rule. And we all know throughout the New Testament what Roman rule meant. It was not a pleasant thing. But what it did do is Roman rule, it was over the entire region, and there was a common political system. There was a common military. And what this military did was it made safe passage between cities. And what it also did was it developed roads that connected these major areas of this region. So we had roads, we had a common language, and we had safe passage that could be done as never before between these cities. And then we had these Roman gods that failed the people over and over again. They were not the answer they were looking for. The Jewish people were holding out for their Messiah, the one that would save them, that would be their answered hope. Paul writes in Galatians that when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Now, I'm not saying that God was in heaven thinking, come on, Romans, get these roads done so I can send Jesus down there. His ways are not our ways. But culturally, politically, 
This all led to a perfect timing of the Messiah coming, having free reign to go between cities to spread the good news, to be able to do it safely, to be able to do it with ease, and to be able to have this unifying language. And in 700 BC, Isaiah, the prophet, writes, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare ye the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So 700 years prior to this, Isaiah was saying a messenger was coming, a forerunner, someone to prepare the way. And who would this be? When you see in the Hall of Fame, uh, different sports Hall of Fames, when someone gets inducted into the Hall of Fame, they get to choose someone important to them that's going to introduce them to give their speech. You know, famously, Walter Payton, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, his son, Jared, went ahead of him and gave his introduction. It can often, at times, as a coach that was very meaningful, maybe a parent, somebody significant in their life. So we're talking about the coming Messiah. Isaiah is saying there's someone that will prepare the way for him. So who would this be? You would think it would be a king, someone that has a lot of authority, a lot of clout, maybe a powerful religious leader. Someone with a lot of influence. But was that the case? So now we move to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest, and his wife Elizabeth, they were up in years, and his wife Elizabeth was barren. And in those times, if you were unable to have children, you were considered cursed. So she was up in her years, unable to have children, until Gabriel the angel visited Zechariah and said, your wife will conceive and you will have a son and he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. This, of course, confused Zechariah. He protested with God. God made him silent until that baby was born. And when that baby was born, the baby's name was John, not the traditional name of being named after the father, But Gabriel said, you will name him John. And when the baby was still in the womb, less than, he was either six months or less in the womb. And we know the story where Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes and she is pregnant with Jesus. And when she visits Elizabeth, we know what the baby does. The baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps with excitement. And I'll pause to just mention this. This infant baby inside the womb, six months or less in the womb, was not just a cluster of cells. It was not just a mass of goo. This was a real-life baby with emotions that was able to leap with excitement, with passion. That is life, and you can't tell me otherwise. So the baby was born and was named John. And then we move ahead 30 years to when John gets called. We know that John is in the wilderness. He gets called out of the wilderness. And he comes out of the wilderness and begins preaching a message of repentance and proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. And even as the opportunity when the Messiah himself comes, John baptizes him, protesting because he is unworthy to do so. But Jesus says that he is to baptize him. So John baptizes his Savior. And what about John? We know he's in the wilderness. 
And is he an influential king? Is he this great priestly ruler? Well, let's see how he is described. He wore camel hair and a leather belt, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Remember from when I preached a few weeks back, man looks at the outside appearance, but God looks at the heart. John was not the guy we would probably pick to proclaim the message of the Messiah. But this wild man in the wilderness is the one who was chosen and prophesied about 700 years prior. And John's message was simple. He gave hope to the hopeless, and he confronted the religious hypocrites. And it's not just a smattering of people that followed him. Crowds were drawn to him. The religious leaders, the sinners, everybody was drawn to the message of John the Baptist. And this led to the passage of Scripture that we're going to read now. So if you would, turn to Mark chapter 6. And as you know, we've been reading through four sections of Scripture each time, uh, each weekend. And we're just, this is one of the passages you can see in your bulletin, Mark chapter 6. And we're, we're just going to focus on this Scripture. The other ones are in the bulletin, so you can read them on your own and answer the questions later if you wish. Uh, but we're going to read Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So let's pause there. So that's the first indication now, after we hear of John's ministry, all of a sudden we hear, wait, raised from the dead? When did he die? So we'll start elaborating on this throughout this passage. Others said he is Elijah, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Pause there for a moment. Wouldn't that be something wonderful to be said of you? If you're proclaiming the things that we're to be proclaiming in the gospel message, it might be hard for people to hear. But wouldn't you love for people to walk away saying, this person is a righteous and holy person? They cannot argue with that. And then I love this statement about him. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. How are you presenting the good news of Jesus Christ? Are people intrigued? Are people drawn to it? Or are people repelled by it? Verse 21, finally the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. What a swift, decisive, terrible end to a man whose life was 700 years prophesied and just like that, gone. The man burned bright. The man burned hot. But it was for a short time. He was snuffed out in an instant. But what can we learn from the life of John the Baptist? At this time, I'm going to turn it over to my dad, who's going to elaborate on the life of John the Baptist. What I like in reading the Bible is I don't like to quibble over fine points of theology or what did it say in the original Greek or Hebrew or any of that. Um, just the way I'm wired, I like to know, how does this affect my life? How can I apply this? How does this make me a better employee, a better man, a better husband, a better father? So I'm looking at the life of John the Baptist, and I'm coming up with four life lessons that we can learn from his life. I mentioned that there's four, so you can keep track with me, kind of know when I'm getting close to being finished. The first life lesson I see is what we wear doesn't matter. I'm intrigued by the fact that under the leading of the Holy Spirit, the writers of the New Testament actually described what John wore. Wore clothes made out of camel's hair and a leather belt that they would take the time to talk about that. When I started going to Northwest Assembly of God in 1991, I would say that 90% of the men wore suits and ties. Today, I'm the only one. <laughs> Although, I'm a little disappointed today because Mark is wearing a tie. Pastor Merrill is wearing a suit and tie. It's like they've taken my bragging rights away. I... But I want us to see that what we wear is not the important thing. It's not what really matters. Now, I have been judgmental and critical of the way some people come to church, the way they're dressed. Perhaps you have as well. So what I have to say to myself and to you is, stop it. Don't, don't do that. I was wrong because I don't know everything. I can't see beyond the clothes to see the heart of the person. Mark mentioned that God does not look on the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. And that's an important thing to remember in our walk with Jesus, is that he sees our heart. He knows the reason for everything that we do, what our motive is, and that's what's really important. So what we wear doesn't really matter. It's interesting that the Bible does not tell us what Jesus wore to compare to John, 
But in Isaiah, in the prophecy about Jesus, it says that, G that the Messiah has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. From that, I would conclude that Jesus looked like everybody else. He wore what was in style at the time. If you saw him on the street, you wouldn't immediately see that he stands out and, whoa, that, that person is really special. There was nothing unusual about him. Again, to show that it's God who knows the heart and what we wear doesn't really matter. But I would like to leave us with this one thought. I think it's a good discipline if each of us, as we get dressed each day, we would ask ourselves, why am I choosing to wear what I'm wearing? And especially when we come to church, why am I choosing to wear what I'm wearing when I come to church? It's just a way of us being honest and joining God in looking at our heart and our motives. The second life lesson I'd like to talk about is that the calling that God has in our life does have limitations. Our calling has limits. John's, John was born to do a very specific thing, to prepare the way of the Lord to make straight paths for him. That was it. And the way that was fleshed out was in his going into the wilderness, living in the wilderness, eating off of the wilderness, and preaching, preaching a message of repentance and then baptizing people when they responded positively to his message. He also knew that the day would come when the Messiah would really show up and then his ministry would be over. He probably knew that the people who followed him would stop following him and would turn and follow the Messiah. It was clear to him what his job was, and he did it. He did it faithfully. Now, among the things we read about John, it says, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. People had to go out, they had to travel to go and hear John the Baptist. He did not come into town and hold tent meetings or anything like that. People actually had to go to him. It's amazing the popularity that he had, that so many people actually did that. They went out and they listened to his message, which was not really a, a feel-good message. It was repent of your sins. And we read here that the people's response to it was to confess their sins. They were touched. Uh, it was shown to them what was wrong in their lives. And then, then as an outward sign that they were going to change their ways, they got baptized by John. God also has made each one of us a certain way. Mark has already referred to the difference between men and women and the way they approach food events. But each of us is wired in a certain unique way. There are things that we're naturally good at, things that we simply are not good at. There are things that we like to do, things that we don't like to do. And that all fits in with the plan that God has for each one of us. The Bible says we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance 
for us to do. Now, if you are being true to yourself and doing the things that, are, that you're good at and doing them well, being faithful in that, chances are you are fulfilling the reason that God has you here on the earth. But along with being faithful to what God has prepared us to do, we will never know everything that God is doing through us. We would probably be surprised if we knew how much God is using us. We tend to compare what we do to what other people are doing, and usually we fall short. And so we'd never get that good feeling that, whoa, God is really using me. Now, John the Baptist himself was asked by people, among other things, are you Elijah? And his answer was, I am not. But he was wrong. Jesus said, if you are willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who was to come. John did not understand the nature of prophecy, that it might have double meanings, and that he would be the fulfillment that the Elijah was to come to prepare the way of the Lord. And so he just naturally thought, no, I'm not Elijah. He's dead and gone. But Jesus clarified it. No, he, he was. He was Elijah. And as we also live out our calling, we have to remember that none of us will do it all. Even the call for people to help set up for the picnic. Now, some of you heard that and you knew immediately that wasn't for me because I can't carry things. I don't have any sense of organization. And some of you are thinking, well, yeah, I should, but I really don't feel like it. <laughs> That's, we're just different. And none of us can do it all, but we all have an important part to play. Something the Lord has been showing me recently, and this has been so freeing, because all my life when I would get in conversations with people, especially people who didn't think like I did, people who held views that I disagreed with, I would kind of be feeling that my calling is to get them to change the way they think. And I haven't had very much success in doing that. And God has shown me recently that that is not my job. And it is so freeing now if I'm in a conversation with somebody who is taking, talking opinions totally the opposite of what I believe, I can relax. And I don't have to worry about getting them to change their thinking. I can actually walk over on their side and look at things with them from their point of view and explore it. I mean, if they're wrong, eventually, hopefully, they'll come to realize it. Maybe not, but I don't have to be the one to get people to change their mind. You might remember that old saying, the man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Uh, we can appear to change other people's way of thinking, but really that's, that's not our business. All, all I'm saying is God has shown me that for me and it has set me free. The third life lesson I'd like to talk about is give honest answers. If people ask you a question, give an honest answer. John is certainly an example of a man who spoke honestly. He was a straight shooter. When he saw the Sadducees and the Pharisees come, among the other people who came to him, 
he addressed them. And he didn't say, oh, my fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, Pharisees and Sadducees, so glad you made the trip out here. Why don't you come up here and sit on the platform with me? Uh, what he said was, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Why was he so rough on these people? Whoa, he just really ripped on them. Well, I'm thinking that, and, and now we're in the realm of uh, kind of putting ourselves into the story. And we really don't have all the information, so we are now guessing maybe what was going on. And this is fun to do with Scripture, knowing that our, our ideas are not inspired, but it's always a, a good thing to put ourselves into the story. So why would John be so rough on them? Well, one thing I'm thinking is that they were coming for the wrong reason, maybe. We know, as we go on in the New Testament, that the Pharisees and Sadducees were very much concerned with their popularity. One of the reasons they ended up killing Jesus was because they realized, especially after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, that if this continues, he is going to be more popular than we are. More people are going to follow him. And it, it was going to mess up their whole system that they had developed their alliance with the Roman government and all these things. And so their only conclusion was, we've got to get rid of this guy. And so they ended up killing Jesus. So perhaps they also saw all these people going out into the wilderness to see John the Baptist. And they're thinking, what in the world is going on there? Why are all these people following him? And so they went out to check it out. Maybe that was why he was so rough on them. But among the things he said to them was, stop trusting in your ethnicity. Stop trusting in the fact that you're a Jew. Don't think you're all automatically on God's good side just because you're a descendant of Abraham. He said, God could raise up descendants of Abraham from these rocks. We can make that same mistake today, and many of us do. We think, well, because I'm a Catholic, I'm okay. Or because I'm a Muslim, my way, that's the right way. Or we might think, well, I have this godly grandmother who has always prayed for me. I'm okay. She'll get me in. Or a guy might say, my wife goes to church every Sunday, takes the kids. My family's covered. I'm covered. We're trusting in something besides ourselves. But John's message of repentance was basically, hey, buddy, it's up to you individually, personally, to take full responsibility for the things that you do and what your decision is. You cannot trust in anything else getting you into heaven. Maybe this is why he was so tough on them. But then he also pointed out that their lives were not measuring up they were not 
bearing fruit that fit repentance. So the people heard him addressing these Pharisees and Sadducees like this, and then we read that they said, what should we do then? It's like, whoa, he's really getting rough here. We don't want him picking on us. What should we do? And he honestly answered the question. Now, if somebody came up to you and said, what must I do to get right with God? Think about how you might answer that question. And there's really two parts to it. One would be if a person doesn't, isn't even walking with God now, then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved would be the answer. But if they're already claiming to be a Christian, then you move into the realm of do the right things, bring forth fruit that fits repentance. So these people were already past that first stage and so he moved into the bringing forth fruit stage. And he says, well, here's what you should do. If you have two shirts, give one to somebody who doesn't have any. Or if you have more food than you need, share it with others who don't have enough. Basically, he was saying, as one of the fruits of repentance, is to lead an unselfish life, to to not be greedy, to not be a hoarder, to not be putting your trust in things. But as you walk through life, look at around you and see, do, are there other people who could use some of the things that I, that I can spare, that I can get rid of? He doesn't talk about get rid of everything. It doesn't say if you have two shirts, give them both away. It doesn't leave us penniless, but it does make us generous. Something to think about. And then some specific people came up to him, tax collectors, and they said, well, what should we do? And he said, don't collect more than is required. That's simple. Soldiers came up to him and said, what should we do? He said, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So apparently there was some corruption in the soldier world extorting people, where they might come up to you and say, hey, you know what, uh, give us a hundred bucks and we'll make sure that no harm comes to your house. The other side is, if you don't give us a hundred bucks, we're not responsible for what might happen. Extorting money from people. And then accusing people falsely. Apparently they were sort of like the police of the day and they were uh, accusing people for whatever reason, not always for right and true reasons. And then to be content with their pay, you wouldn't expect him to say that. But apparently there was a lot of grumbling among the, the soldiers about their pay not being enough. And he just said, be content with what you have. Another parallel between John the Baptist and Elijah in the Old Testament was that they both spoke to the king at the time. We know that John the Baptist spoke to King Herod, told him he was wrong for marrying his brother's wife. King Herod didn't change. He didn't unmarry his brother's wife, but he didn't reject John the Baptist. He was intrigued by the things he said, pondered them, wanted to hear more, but his wife, just the opposite. She hated John the Baptist 
and wanted him killed and eventually succeeded in doing that. In the Old Testament, Elijah confronted King Ahab and he basically said to him, you had that man killed so you could steal his property. That was wrong. And Ahab also was open to hearing what Elijah had to say. And we even read, even though Ahab, we, most of us can think of nothing good about him, actually at the end of his life he did repent and, and God blessed him. But his wife, not so. Jezebel hated Elijah and she also put out a warrant for his arrest and his death. Just a parallel between these two men, but they spoke the truth to even the leaders, the kings of their day. My fourth life lesson is that God's opinion is the one that matters. We can look at the life of John the Baptist and we can explore what our own opinion of him might be, what the opinion of others was. We know that the people who went to him and who confessed their sins and were baptized believed that he was a man of God who spoke the truth, they listened to him, they followed his message. His critics probably thought he was a little eccentric, maybe crazy. Um, these people are foolish for following him. They didn't see much positive in his ministry. Maybe they even made fun of the way he dressed. Uh, John's opinion about himself. We know that when he ended up being in prison, he began to doubt that he really was the one to precede the Messiah. He even began to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah. He began to have these doubts. Now, these were all settled, but... Being human, like we are, he did have these doubts. Herod's opinion of him, as we've already talked about, was that there's something to what this guy says. Herod's wife, Herodias, her opinion was, we got to get rid of this guy. In our opinion, we might look at this story and we'd say, whoa, John the Baptist is a great example of a man who was faithful to do what the Lord called him to do. We might feel a little sad that he was killed in his early 30s, but, whoa, he, he is an example of a faithful man. <clears throat> we have recorded in Scripture, though, Jesus' opinion of John the Baptist. And I don't know if you remember this. Jesus said, Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Can you believe that? I don't think any of us in reading the Bible would ever come to that conclusion. I know for myself, Daniel is my hero. Jesus is saying, forget Daniel. John the Baptist is greater. Forget Abraham, Moses, all the great prophets. David, Hezekiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, is greater than all of them. I'm sure when John the Baptist got to heaven that he thought that that can't be true. <laughs> he was probably shocked by Jesus' assessment to him. Kind of reminds me of the story Jesus told of what the final judgment is going to look like where people are going to come before God and some of them are going to have some wonderful things said about them. 
that, whoa, come and be blessed because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you gave me clothes to wear. And these people are going to be shocked, and they're going to say, when did we do this? And you'll remember that Jesus said, well, as you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. So like John the Baptist, uh, there's going to be a lot of surprises. But the bottom line is, it's God's opinion that really matters. Now I'm going to turn it back to Mark, and he's going to show us more how the message of John the Baptist really is relevant for us today. Okay, I have 12 points, so you'll be able to keep track and know when I'm almost done. The message that John preached is the same message today. The message is as relevant as ever. It may not be heard a lot, but that message still rings true. Part of that message is repent. Repentance. The Bible says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. That calling still stands today for us to repent, to make that U-turn, to turn from our ways to follow God. And if you haven't done that, it's so simple. It's turning from the selfishness, the pride of yourself, and accepting Christ's death and resurrection and choosing to follow that. Secondly, the message he preached was produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We know in the Bible it says faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So it's not just words out of your mouth, but it is a deep, heartfelt truth that I will repent, I will follow, and the fruit from that tree will follow. And then we hear John says to confess your sins. Now this one's kind of tricky because I think so many times you, people might think, well, maybe I'm not Catholic, so I don't believe that I have to repent or I have to confess my sins to a priest. And that's true, that we can confess our sins straight to God. But I think sometimes without that physical confession, here that maybe we don't do that as often as it would be healing for us to do. To go straight to God the Father with Christ as our mediator and confess our sins. If we confess our sins, the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is healing, salvation, power in confession of sins. And finally, what John preached, this part of the message, that he was sent to make straight paths for Jesus. I've shared before up here that God has revealed to me my life's purpose is to introduce people to Jesus. Whether it's the way I conduct myself at work, in my family, the way I conduct myself on the road driving with other people, it is to introduce people to Jesus. And sometimes that doesn't mean a conversation leading someone to Christ, but it means, Mark, get out of the way so I can do the work that I want to do. 
And that is John's goal, is to make straight paths for Jesus. How many times have I gotten in the way of someone knowing the Savior because of the stupid thing that I couldn't help myself that I had to say, or the selfish act that I did, or the way that I acted out in anger and got too much pride involved? But like John the Baptist, we are called to make straight paths for Jesus. Get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do his work. I'm going to take this opportunity now. We're going to close in prayer, and then I will conclude with the blessing of the Lord. Father, I thank you so much for the example of John the Baptist that was centuries in the making. It was snuffed out so quickly. But yet here was a man that you said there was no one greater than him. Thank you for all these truths that we can learn. And I pray that you would help every one of us to take this to heart. That we would go from this place repenting from our ways. That we would go from this place confessing, not just in, in one moment, but that we would confess continually where we continue to blow it. And in those moments, your active Holy Spirit can give us healing, bring times of refreshing, and help us get on the right path. God, show us how we can produce fruit in line with our repentance. And Lord, we give you the permission to push us out of the way when you want to do your work and we keep getting in the way. I pray a blessing over my church family here today. May they be encouraged, may they be challenged, and may all of us look to serve you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen.